We're talking about the resurrection today, the hope of the resurrection. So let's, uh, let's just bow forward of prayer before we begin. Father, we just want to praise you and thank you that you are alive. Thank you that Jesus, your son, is alive. And uh, we know that because the scriptures tell us, but we also know it in the results that we see. Many of us know it because we met him this morning. And so we just ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would take this message, and I pray that it would be an encouragement and an exhortation uh, for us both this morning as we uh, meditate on the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're going to survey two, uh, we're going to look at two areas this morning. First, we're going to survey the evidence for the resurrection. And then we're going to, because we live in a real skeptical age, and then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at, we're going to ponder the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. First, the evidence. McLean's questioned whether or not Jesus even existed as a real person. Yet Josephus, a, a Jewish historian writing at the end of the first century, includes in his writings a substantial passage describing Jesus, his works, his death at the hand of Pilate, and then he adds the following, and I quote, for he appeared to them alive on the third day, the divine prophets, having spoken these and thousands of other wonderful things about him. Josephus not only records that Jesus was an actual historical figure, despite what McLean's magazine says, he even refers to Jesus' resur resurrection. Now what makes this more remarkable is that far from being sympathetic to Christians, Josephus was a Jew writing to please the Romans. Uh, this story would not have pleased them the slightest. So as Paul said to King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner, the things that Jesus did. It's not like you can, uh, uh, like they, they might not have happened, it's just a little bit of folklore and stuff. It happened in front of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people so that Paul could say to King Agrippa, these things didn't happen in a corner. This is when he stood before him in the book of Acts. The New Testament documents couldn't say uh, Jesus was crucified or risen if thousands were still alive who knew he didn't die or rise. Christianity would never have gotten off the ground. Other mess uh, messianic leaders had died and with them their movements, but not this one. Why? Well, there's uh, further evidence. The number of uh, eyewitnesses, critics have suggested that the resurrection narratives in the Gospels must have been developed later, long after the events themselves. However, we know and historians agree that the letters of Paul were written only 15 to 25 years after the time of Christ, the life of Christ, after his death, and Paul lists eyewitnesses, and he makes a challenge uh, to them. I'll listen to it as I read. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to uh, all as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul says that most, uh, that most of these witnesses, are hundreds of them, are still alive. So he was inviting corroboration. He's saying, go ahead and take a look. And the time of, and at the time of Rome right then, roads were plentiful, they were easy to travel on, and they were for the most part safe. And so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of movement and people could they, could, they could find out, they could test it. And he's saying, test it and see if it's true. Ask somebody. Then there's this matter of the counterproductive content in the Gospels. There are some things included in the Gospels, and particularly now we're talking about the, uh, we're talking about the, the time of the Passion, the crucifixion, the, the burial and the resurrection. There are some things written in there that you certainly wouldn't write if you were just trying to um, uh, persuade people. They're counterprodu it's counterproductive content. I mean, why would you make up the story of a crucifixion if it didn't happen? Because really, if you're telling the story about how Jesus died in, to the, the hearers of that day, that would have meant they would have been persuaded that he must have been, they, were, they would just have suspected immediately that he must have been a criminal because why else would they kill him? So it wasn't exactly doing them a favor by just writing things like that. Or why would leaders of the early Christian movement invent women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection in society? Women were assigned the lowest status in society that their testimony is so much so that their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. It would have made more sense to have male pillars of the community present, amen? Get, get some of the real religious leaders there, guys. But not the women. So why would you insert something like that that would hurt the story and be less compelling to the hearers? Unless it were true. Why play up the terrible failures of the church's most prominent leader? I mean, the Gospels depict, just before Christ's passion, that Peter denied Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. No, I'll never, you know, I'm going to die with you. No, Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times, even to the point of calling down a curse on his master. If it were not true, this certainly would have been a counterproductive incident to include in the narrative. I mean, that'd be like saying, we want to grow this church. I mean, we want to really grow it. We want to grow four full services, and this is how we're going to do. Go out there and tell them the worst stuff you can think about Pastor Ray and Pastor Chris. All the dirt that you can figure out about Pastor Ray and Pastor Chris, tell that out there, that should grow the church. Does that make any sense? No. You would try to brush me up and make me look good. Isn't that true? And if they include this kind of details, why would they do that? 
unless it actually happened. Unless it actually happened. Then there's this matter of the predominant non-Jewish worldview. We imagine that the modern, that uh, we moderns take claims of a bodily resurrection with skepticism, while the ancients they were, you know, full of credulity because they were simpletons. So they believed in things like the supernatural, and they would have immediately accepted it. Not true. Not true at all. The universal view of the people of that time was that a bodily resurrection was impossible. Why? Because in Greek and Roman thinking, the solar spirit was good and the physical and material world was weak and corrupt and defiling. To them, the physical was always falling apart. Therefore, salvation was conceived as liberation from the body. In this worldview, resurrection was not only impossible, but completely undesirable. Nobody would want to go back. So they were actually skeptical. They weren't susceptible to that kind of thinking. They were actually skeptical about it, just like modern people today. No different. So the claim of the resurrection would have been outlandish and unthinkable unless... There had actually been one. It wasn't a message that fit the people. It was counter-cultural. It was counterintuitive, even to the Jewish worldview of that time. Now, the report of the resurrection would have also been unthinkable to Jews. They did believe that material was good, counter, uh, you know, contrary to what the Romans and the Greeks thought, they did think the material world was a good thing, but never, ever had it occurred to them that there could be such a thing as a resurrection of an individual in mid-history. Did they believe in the resurrection? Yes. The Pharisees did. Sadducees didn't. That's why they were sad, you see. Uh, but they didn't the Pharisees believed there was going to be a, a general resurrection at the end. One big thing, and then everything would be made, uh, would be renewed and, and recreated in this big general uh, resurrection. But never had it occurred to them. Never did the discussion come up that there was going to be one person rising from the dead in mid-history somewhere. That was completely off the charts, it was completely out of their discussion, uh, the realm of their possibilities and discussions. So the idea of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not something that played into their already, uh, into their understanding already. It was counterintuitive and countercultural for them as well. Wow. I mean, that's why Joseph of Arimathea carefully wrapped Jesus' body in linen cloths and the women purchased and prepared bur burial spices to neutralize the putrid smell of death. If they'd been expecting him to rise from the dead, they wouldn't have done that. Isn't it true? Why do it? He's going to rise any, any moment. And then there's the skeptics, uh, skepticism of the ancients themselves. Matthew 28 says... When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. This is a remarkable admission. Here is the author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection, even when they were looking straight at him. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, why would you include that, such a thing? That'd be like me doubting whether the Bible's actually true. There's no other reason for this to be included in the account unless it really happened. It's a warning for us not to think that only we modern scientific people have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous while ancient, more primitive people didn't have to. Then there's the witness of the martyrs. Recall the cowardice of the disciples? <laughs> you know, the, the women, they went to the tomb and it wasn't until they reported it, the, other, the, the, the apostles, they were hidden in a room and locked up. It wasn't until they came back and reported that the body was gone that Peter and another disciple ran to the, ran to the tomb. Uh, but think about Simon Peter cringing and lying when questioned by a maid uh, in the court of the high priest, or the abject fear for their own personal safety that brought them to flee and even reject the one they truly loved. Not only that, they had sacrificed everything to follow Jesus, their jobs and their families, their futures. They had pinned all their hopes on Jesus, and now he was dead. I mean, they had, they had put all their money down on the wrong horse, so to speak. They had bet wrong. He was now dead. He was publicly branded a criminal. Their hopes were dashed. These are not men ready to believe. All, they had be, uh, all had been rebuked at one time for their unbelief in the resurrection. This proves they were convinced against their will. That's incredible. And what did the disciples have to gain by lying and starting a new religion? <laughs> they hardly looked like the type that would start off a new religion to begin with. And especially when you consider that if it had been a lie, why would, you do, why would you do that? What would they have gained? They faced hardship, they faced ridicule, hostility, and martyrs' deaths. Pascal, the um, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Christian philosopher said, and I quote, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. What's he saying? Nobody would die, knowingly die for a lie. No one would knowingly die for a lie. Virtually all the apostles and early Christian leaders died for their faith. They couldn't have sustained such unwavering motivation if they knew that they were what they were preaching was a lie. And then, of course, there's a whole matter of the Jewish belief about God. How could first-century Jews have come to worship a human being as divine. I mean, they believed in a single personal God. It was absolute blasphemy to propose that any human being should be worshipped, yet hundreds of Jews and then thousands almost overnight just suddenly began worshipping him. What accounts for that? Only if they had actually seen him would that account for this. The resurrection is a firmly attested fact that I've staked my entire life on. And I know many of you have. It's the truth. Jesus is alive. He arose, and that's what gives us hope, and that's the meaning we want to talk about right, uh, next. 
First of all, it ensures our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our what? Justification. Jesus paid for our sins by his death on the cross. Why would Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive him? That's what a lot of skeptics often ask. Like, like just get over it already. Just forgive and forget. Why all this uh, blood and gore and all of that? Well, we're not going to go into a lot of that, but uh, we'll just ponder it for a moment. A Christian, sound, uh, Christian God sounds to some like vengeful gods of primitive times who needed to be appeased by human sacrifice. Why can't God just accept them? You know, real forgiveness is costly suffering. That's what it is. If someone borrows your car and, and wrecks part of your property when backing out and your insurance won't pay for it, somebody's going to have to pay for it. Is that true? Like, either your friend is going to have to do it or you're going to have to do it or the two of you are going to have to share the cost together. But somebody has to pay. But the cost of the damage uh, and forgiveness in this illustration would be bearing the cost of this accident yourself, that would be forgiveness. It costs you something you would have to suffer if you forgive your friend for, for doing that, wouldn't you? You'd have to pay for it. But most of the wrongs done to us cannot be assessed in purely economic terms, can they? People rob us of our, of our happiness or our reputation by the things they say or by blocking us from opportunity. They hurt us. And when we're seriously wrong, we have a sense that the perpetrators have incurred a debt. And there's a feeling like that wells up inside of us that we have got to get payment back for the debt owed. You can seek ways to make them suffer for what they've done, withhold your relationship, or wish for some kind of pain in their lives. That's one option, right? Make them pay. Or you can choose to forgive. Is that true? Now, here's the problem with forgiving. Would you agree that forgiving is a problem? Here is the problem with forgiving. If you forgive, you suffer twice. Is it true? First, for what they did to you. And now, secondly through the agony you experience because you can't, you can't get revenge. You can't get that paid back. You're allowing them to go free, and so you carry an additional agony of suffering. Is that true? Is it hard when somebody has really harmed you and really hurt you? That's, that's a bad enough harm, but now to forgive means you're going to suffer in silence even more. You want them to pay, but option two is, is to uh, forgive. You're absorbing the debt. That's what you're doing. You're taking the cost of it completely on yourself. It feels like a kind of death, doesn't it? It feels like a kind of death. Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just forgive? Now we can see that no one just forgives. If the evil is serious, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer pay for the cost. And on the cross, 
We see God doing visibly what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. There was a debt to be paid, and God paid it, and that's why Jesus died. He absorbed it. And by raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work on the cross in forgiving us, paying for our sins and forgiving us. And it was settled. There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of of God to bear. All had been completely paid. Jesus absorbed our sins on the cross, and when we receive him, look what happens. Paul said, but God rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, what? Alive together with Christ. Here we see the kingdom of God breaking into our world. Already our spirits can be redeemed, though our bodies not. People who were oriented around self, who were breaking relationships with those around them, broken and maybe broken inside, and they are broken inside, are made alive. That's the only hope for the world. And many are being made alive, and the kingdom just keeps growing. The kingdom just keeps growing. This is a story uh, from one of the pastors uh, from Church Renewal Online Mentoring that, uh, that I heard this last week. And, uh, and uh, he's a Philippine pastor. He's from the Philippines, and he's a pastor in Edmonton. And uh, on Friday, March the 18th, this just happened, the third month, 18th day, you'll see why that's important, uh, he received a Facebook message from a man by the name of Vlad, V-L-A-D. And he is a player coach in their basketball league that they have set up uh, to reach people for Christ. That's, it's an outreach program. And uh, Vlad is, uh, was not a believer. And so he sent him a Facebook message and he said, I need to make an appointment with you. He sent it out, I think, on Tuesday, the 15th or something like that. Uh, oh, first on Sunday, that's right. And he sent a Facebook message and said, we've got to meet because I had a dream. And uh, this dream, I think you can interpret it. I, I need a biblical explanation for it. And this is, the, this is a non-believer. So uh, Pastor Joshua sent out a, uh, uh, sent out a prayer request to the uh, church leaders and asked them to pray as he was going to be meeting at 1 o'clock with this, uh, with this gentleman. And uh, when he met, Vlad said to him, this is my dream. In my dream, uh, he said, I, I was sleeping in my dream. So th- this, is, this is in the dream itself. He said, I was sleeping, and the phone began to ring in his dream. And so he, he, he wanted to see who it was, and he saw the caller ID on there, and you know what the caller ID said? Jesus. And so he tried to reach for, the, in the dream, tried to reach for the phone and turn it on, but in the process of doing it, um, the phone quit ringing. By the time he was able to turn it on, uh, there was no one on the other end. And right at that moment, he awoke. And the dream was so vivid, and the r- dream was so real to him, that he, uh, that he just began to weep. And uh, so he said to Pastor Joshua, he said, um, can you give me an explanation for this? Um, and so, so Pastor Joshua shared the gospel with him, and then he looked at the pastor, and he said, that explanation 
makes sense for that dream. And with that, with tears streaming down his face, he received the forgiveness of sins and received Christ into his heart. And it was, uh, it was an amazing thing. Now, this is what Pastor Joshua said. The story continues. He said, I always carry in my bag, my carry-along, uh, several New Testament Bibles. And so if I lead somebody to Christ, I take out a pen and I write the date in there for the person that I've led to Christ, just so that there's a reminder of that special event. And uh, so he had forgotten what date it was on the Friday, and so he, he looked at this Vlad, and he said, well, by the way, what's the date? I, I just want to put it in. And Vlad looks and suddenly realizes it's March 18th. His eyes grew big. He said, 318. And Pastor Joshua goes, 318? What's so special about 318? He said, all my life. The three numbers, 318, have been in front of me. And he said, I've never known why these three numbers, these three digits, 318. In fact, he said, I used them to buy lottery tickets. I thought maybe that's what they were for. <laughs> and he said, now I realize that the numbers 318 refer to the day that I received Jesus as my Savior. He couldn't believe it. Now, here's what was interesting about that. Pastor Joshua notes, he said, because on Sunday, the, he received the Facebook message. On, uh, they, they tried to meet on Tuesday the 15th. They tried to meet on Wednesday the 16th, Thursday the 17th, and, and their calendars just weren't jiving. And finally, they settled on Friday, March, or the 318. Isn't that amazing? God is still breaking in into hearts and lives all over the place. In fact, I was sitting with Rolando uh, Justin Yenio, <laughs> something like that. I should have just gone with Rolando Dirksen or something, but um, he was the uh, former head of the Campus Crusade for Asia and, and for Latin America and so on and so forth, and he was here at the church renewal weekend in October and uh, invited him to our home right after the, after the prayer summit. And so he was sitting on my couch, and just the two of us sitting on the couch, uh, and he's looking at me, and he started telling me about Latin America. And he said, you know, there were 60,000 believers in the early 60s. 50 years later, he said, there's about 120 million. And he said, over 300,000 churches. And that's when he appealed for help in the Latin American church. He said, you have some of the things that we need down there. But the point being in this point is that because Jesus rose from the dead, it was proof that he had completed, he had finished the work that he came so that he could save and justify you and I and many millions around the world, which is an amazing thing. That's what the resurrection um, does for us. Second, it ensures our own resurrection bodies and 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul said, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's, this tremendous agricultural metaphor that he's using here as the first fruits or first taste of the ripening crop show what the rest of the harvest will be like for that crop. So too, Christ is the first fruits who shows what our resurrection bodies will be like when he raises us up from the dead and brings us into his presence. 
So if you want to know what your body is going to be like, look at Christ's body. And we know that it's made up of some of the old material because that's why the tomb was empty. It's not like his body stayed there and he got a different one. But there were additional properties given. And so it was a transformed body. It was a transformed body. And uh, Romans 8 says, not only so, Paul said this, uh, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the what? Redemption of our bodies. Redemption of our bodies. I mean, that's, that's a hope we have because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of this. When we pray for healing of our bodies, we often receive it, though not always. And we had a tremendous testimony there from Klaus and, and, uh, and Eva uh, Bueller. I mean, he had a 10% chance of living. You heard it in the testimony. I remember that day they gathered to pray, and I was just in there the first few moments. Tim was leading, did a tremendous job, and the rest of the staff and others. But such healings... And, and they're wonderful. Do we like miraculous healings here at Southland? And do we see them on a regular basis? Yes or no? Yeah, we do. And they're wonderful. And we praise the Lord. We get excited about it. And we thank the Lord at the prayer summits even for, for this particular healing and some, some of the other ones. Such healings, however, are only a sign that the kingdom is breaking in and is yet to come in its fullness when heaven and earth are finally reunited and Jesus reigns on earth. They are a down payment. <laughs> they, are, uh, they are a guarantee. They give us hope that one day we're going to experience ultimate healing. All of us. How many of you got aches and pains right now? Raise your hands. Oh my goodness, a bunch of you need healing. We should stop the service here and have a healing service. But I bet if we did, right after that, there'd be just about as many hands. Miraculous healings give us hope that one day our bodies will be healed. Have you ever noted that when someone is healed, they are not restored to how they were at age 30? Have you ever noticed that? Listen, I'm 61. I wouldn't mind being healed to the point of being back at 30. You get sags, you get wrinkles, you get pot bellies, you get scars from surgeries you the, the get up and go has got up and gone <laughs> isn't it true is it true or isn't it those of you that are aging I think you all are <laughs> but Fran and I talk about that all the time we say man I love it look at the picture that used to be me people don't even recognize me I don't recognize me and I say that can't be me Brown hair? Are you serious? <laughs> Even when something is healed in the present, it doesn't take us all the way back to being our perfect bodies, does it? Yeah. I mean, we still need, you know, if, if somebody's healed like uh, at age 60, like me, and have the energy of a 60-year-old, they still need glasses. And they still need a pile of meds to keep them going. Big bottles. 
You see, every decade that you grow up, you get another bottle of meds to take. <laughs> That's about how it works. I can't imagine the cupboards that I'm going to have when I'm age 70. You know, big refrigerators full just to kind of keep us going. That's not what we're hoping for. You know, they call them the golden years. Are you serious? <laughs> Talk to somebody that's in those golden years. It's not all gold, is it? And yet, we have a hope because Jesus arose from the dead that one day we're getting perfect bodies and even the, even the perfect bodies are going to be transformed and have properties that we didn't even have before. It's going to be amazing. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says our present bodies are corruptible but the future ones, the ones animated by the Spirit, that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's not talking about spiritual bodies. No, that we're just floating spirits. No, no, that's not what he's talking. He's talking about uh, our bodies being animated by the Spirit rather than our own souls. And he said those bodies are incorruptible. I, uh, I think of Joni Erickson Tata, quadriplegic since she was a teenager, and she said, and I quote, I was shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? End of quote. She said, she said she looks forward to the day when she can dance. There's something else she said. She said, I look forward to the day when I can kneel down on glorified knees before my Savior. Amen. Is that an amazing thing to say? She doesn't pity herself. You know why? Because she has hope. It's not going to be like this forever. Amen? That's the hope of the resurrection. Wow. The resurrection promises not just new minds and hearts, but also new bodies that will be more perfect, more beautiful one day than they ever were. And we will be able to do and bear the burden of what bodies are supposed to do in a way that our present bodies can't. That leads us to the third and last part. The resurrection, in its meaning, ensures the restoration of creation. The resurrection is about Jesus coming out of the tomb and getting God's real new creation underway. He already shown that to Isaiah and Amos and others who wrote that God wants to bring about the new heaven and new earth. Are you looking forward to a new heaven and new earth and a new creation? Because that's what you're getting. I get tired of this broken old world, don't you? Isaiah 11, the prophet said the wolf will lie with the lamb. I can't imagine that. Leopard will lie down with a goat. Infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Young child put his hand into the viper's nest. That is described in the word, the Hebrew word shalom, complete healing of all the relationships in creation. We'll be reconciled to God, to one another, to ourselves, and to nature. A perfect place. 
The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this present world in a real way right now. This was dramatically symbolized in the 4th century when Dionysus constructed a dating scheme for the whole world based on the supposed birth date of Jesus. He was off by a couple of years, but the point was we got a dating system that goes through the entire world and every time you write the date on, your on a check, you're bearing witness that Jesus is alive, A.D. Isn't that something? It's breaking in. Every time someone puts, uh, and from the earliest, the church has understood the first day of the week, the day of Easter, has become a sign within the present world that the life of the age to come has already broken in. It's amazing. Sunday kept as a commemoration of Easter ever since the event is quite a remarkable phenomenon when you come to think about it. And it too is a perpetual sign of a joyfully renewed week, declaring that even all time belongs to God and stands under the renewing of the Lordship of Christ. Everything, the material world, the time, everything is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His kingdom has already begun to break in into hearts and lives. We see a few healings here and there. Many maybe, but not nearly like we're going to see on that day. You're never going to need a little anointing bottle again. Incredible. And then we have the kingdom breaking into our systems on earth. And already bringing renewal. The mission of the church must therefore include the recognition that our present earth and time are all subject to, not to rejection, but to redemption. There's so, so much escapism in Christianity today. You know, let's just hunker down and uh, maybe sell a few things, go up to a hill and wait for Jesus to take us out. He's not, try, he's not asking us to escape this world. He's saying, take me with you back into the world so we can renew and recreate the old, tired out systems. That's what drove the William Wilberforces to take on the monster of slavery. The monstrous evil of slavery. And give his entire life to it and say, Lord, work through me and work through the Clapham group and through those that have been awakened in the church to make a difference. Because as we make a difference, then others begin to see what the true kingdom is going to look like. They get a hint. They get a picture. They get an idea of what it's going to be like. Amen? Yeah. Early Christians caused others to value the sanctity of life. Women received dignity. Hospitals, health care, Education, charity and compassion, the advancement of science, liberty and justice, all these were hallmarks of the worldwide church. Our risen Lord bids us to listen to his direction, then join him in bringing renewal in the areas he's calling us to renew, and that's why we have launched out into church renewal, because one of the things God has called us to do is to bring renewal to his church. And that's why we do it. Not because I had a great idea. I didn't. Each one of us has to come to the place where we 
sit down and we listen and we receive and we say, God, what is it that you want me to do? And then he says, walk with me as we go back into the cesspool and into the mess and let's renew something, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. That's a calling we have. Maybe he's calling you to risk and make a difference in business or in education or in politics or in the media or in healthcare or in families or in your family or something. But every one of us, he wants to use us to bring the kingdom further into this world and bring transformation systems. No one and no church can do everything, but we can all do something. Isn't it true? I want to finish with a story from another pastor on, uh, in Church Renewal Online Mentoring. And this was told to me uh, and the whole group that was online uh, just a couple weeks ago. And this pastor's name is uh, Pastor Tony Warner from Fort St. John, Evangel uh, Evangel Church in Fort St. John. And uh, he tells the story of uh, he's been teaching his people how to hear God and, and stuff. So then he preached a message on being risk-takers. And at the end, he's included a practical piece where he has them listening in prayer. A church about 500. And he has them listening in prayer. And so for that particular uh, Sunday, because of the topic of the message, he said, I want you to listen and see what God wants you to do. Well, he, he stopped for a bit. They wrote out some things. And, and he closed the service. And one man came up to him and he said, I, I think I know what God just told me he wants me to do. And uh, Pastor Tony said, uh, what is it he wants you to do? And the man said, I think he wants me to uh, go to the psychic fair next week. And Tony goes, oh boy. The psychic fair? Yes, I think God just spoke to me and told me to go to the psychic fair next week. And Tony, uh, Tony's just rolling his eyes when he's telling the story. And he said, okay, well then at the very least, you better take a team with you. And so the man formed a team of five, one of them, that volunteered was the pastor's own son, Levi, 16. And, uh, and uh, that very weekend, Tony and his wife were coming here for the Empower Ministers Retreat, but uh, the, this other group of five, they went to the um, psychic fair. Now, what they had done is they put out a fleece and they said, God, if you really want us to minister at the psychic fair, then there's got to be a table and a booth available. And so they phoned on Monday, and sure enough, there was one table with a booth left, you know, curtains and stuff where you could do your readings in the back. And so the man had decided he was going to put the church's name there on a prominent sign, and the pastor was going, oh, man. <laughs> like, do we really have to put that on there? And then he made cards where they were going to be writing things down, and on the flip side, it had the church's name and number. And uh, anyway, they, they went to the psychic fair, and they were right in the middle of the, the whole thing. And, and so people began to come, because they ended up right in the center. And people began to come, and, and they had another sign beside the, the church name, and it said, Spiritual Readings. <laughs> and uh, so they were, uh, were going to give spiritual readings. So people came, and, and uh, this team of five figure, they prayed over about 80 people. That, uh, uh, that particular day. And uh, they said the longest they listened in prayer for anybody who came was three minutes, but often it would happen even as a person was walking up to them. God would give them a word, a thought, a picture, something. The word started to spread through the psychic fair 
that these spiritual readings were so accurate that others were coming, but by the mid-afternoon, two psychics came, two other psychics came because they also wanted spiritual readings because these were so accurate. One of the people that came for a spiritual reading, and these are all non-believers, uh, they listened and uh, the team member got, I see someone is knocking at, uh, on a door really, really hard. And then he said, I don't know, but I have a sense that this could be Jesus and that one of these days he's going to come knocking at your door. A couple of nights later, the man had gone to sleep and in the middle of the night, he was woken by loud knocking on his front door. So he got up, turned the lights on, went to the front door, opened the door, and there was nobody there. But as he opened it, there was this strong presence that just swept into the room, and he suddenly remembered the spiritual reading that said, I think Jesus is going to come knocking at your door. And he knew immediately it was that, that the Lord had shown up. And he went to uh, the couch and in the living room, and he knelt down, and he received Jesus. Then he waited for the morning to come, took out the card, flipped it over. Oh, yes, there's the church and the church number. And he called them, and he told them what had happened. And so they sent somebody, and uh, they began to disciple him, and they've, they've brought him into the church. Now, here's, here's, an, here's a, an interesting postscript. Since that time, this psychic society has now invited him to two more psychic fairs, one in Alberta and one, and one in B.C. Um, you see, if we listen and we're willing to risk, God wants to, he wants to renew and recreate the systems and the organizations and stuff because the kingdom is moving in. It's moving in. And people can tell when he shows up. Isn't it true? It's true. The resurrection ensures that we've been justified and made alive in, alive in Christ so that we can become the people God intended us to become. It ensures that one day our bodies will be redeemed and transformed into perfect, incorruptible bodies. And it ensures the restoration of all creation. And when you grasp all of this, who cares what people do to you? You're free from ultimate anxieties in life so that you can be brave and take risks. You can even face the worst thing, even life in a wheelchair, with joy, with hope. And on that blessed day of the Lord, God will make everything right. And you will find that the worst things that ever happened to you will, in the end, only enhance your eternal delight and joy. Isn't that true? So live in the light of the resurrection and renewal of this world. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as Savior. I invite you to follow me in this prayer. You can also go to the prayer room and have someone pray with you. Lord, I thank you for bringing me here today and I, I thank you for helping me to see the importance of the resurrection and I doubted it. I believed what media reports were saying. And I believe what other skeptics were saying, but I, I recognize that you are working powerfully and your kingdom is breaking into individual lives. And you are demonstrating yourself in powerful ways through miracles and changing 
of systems and organizations and, and such. And so I, I ask you to forgive me of my sin and I ask you to come in and be Lord of my life. And then use me to further your kingdom here in the time that's left. Just for a moment right now, I'd like believers to just stop and ponder this question. Lord, the same question that Pastor Tony asked, what is it that you want me to do? Where do you want me to bring the, your kingdom to bear upon? Let him speak to you. Jot it down. Is it a relationship? Is it something he wants you to do at your job? Is it your neighborhood? Is it an organization you belong to? Is it the political team you're part of? Is it an education with kids? Where does he want his kingdom to bear a rule in your sphere of influence? Lord, we thank you that you are alive and that your kingdom is breaking into this present world for ultimate renewal and recreation. And we look forward to that day when it is full, finally fulfilled when you return in all your power and glory. We commit ourselves to working with you towards that end till Jesus comes.